Wolves and people were not natural enemies. The humans' relationship with other animals established their rivalry with wolves. John T. Coleman. I'm Aaron Gullius. And I'm Samantha Engel, and you're listening to Great Lakes Lore. A podcast where two historians dive into legends of murders, ghosts, cryptids, and more in the Great Lakes region. Today, Dogman Part 1, Wolves of Legend. So in case you're wondering why we took the topic of Dogman and split it into two parts, the first part which doesn't even have Dogman in the subtitle, it's because we thought that in order to understand Dogman today and the sightings that we have of these Dogman-type creatures throughout the Great Lakes region, we needed to take a look at wolves. So before we dive into this this episode about wolves, um, we thought it would be important to actually define what Dogman is, right? (laughs) Right. Yes. So um, when we say dogman, we are talking about a series of sightings of some kind of cryptid type creature throughout the Great Lakes region that is not a werewolf. Dogman and werewolves, um, you know, seem to be very distinct um, when we're looking at these, you know, I guess, sightings of, of this creature. But it is a wolf-like creature that often stands on two feet. It's sort of a humanoid dog man, (laughs) as it were. (laughs) Right. And generally, we don't say wolf man because wolf man sort of implies werewolf. And I think the big distinction, just in my mind, is dog men are just dog men. Werewolves sort of transmute back and forth. They're your friendly neighborhood greengrocer. Nobody has (laughs) greengrocers anymore. Your friendly neighborhood greengrocer who... (laughs) When there's a full moon or he's angered, oh, that's the Incredible Hulk, but you yeah. get the idea. They <laughs> undergo a transformation into yes. this creature. And the dog man is simply the creature all the time. And I think yes. an important reason to look at the the wolf itself is because sometimes what ends up happening is when you've got a cryptid that is very clearly connected with an animal, we lose sight of the animal Mm -hmm. and the nature of the animal and the connotations and the cultural context of the animal. So by looking at stories of wolves and looking at the history of those stories, we can get a clearer indication of why the idea of a dog man or wolf creature is so scary. Yeah, so let's dive into sort of a background on on what a wolf is. I know it probably seems very obvious to most of us, so I'm not going to spend too long on this, but I have to admit that as like a a preteen and early teen, I was a total wolf nerd. <laughs> if, if there is such a thing, <laughs> I was not wearing like wolves howling at the moon t-shirts or anything like that, but very concerned about wolf populations as a 13 year old so. did you wear the headband with the little wolf ears no i did not oh, okay no. I, I, just make no. just making sure no no that was not me <laughs> but anyway so wolves um once roamed throughout europe asia and north america and um there are over 30 subspecies of of wolves um in existence today and there are a few discrepancies depending on you know what exactly constitutes a wolf versus fox and you know how all of these things are wrapped you know together so i was reading up a little bit on that and decided to stick with over 30 subspecies that seemed safe to me <laughs> today the wolf's range has decreased to about a third of what it originally was due to human actions um when we're looking at the size of wolves the largest wolf weighed in at 175 pounds so that is a a decent sized beast <laughs> Um, that was definitely a, a, an extreme end, though. I'm not not sort of the average. That's very um, large. It is, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, wolves uh, roam in packs, and they have very highly developed social structures within those, and um, they roam a very regular territory. So they are territorial animals. Um, but because of these social structures in their packs, sometimes, um, you know, as you're the, the population's reproducing, and a wolf is, you know, 
kicked out to go make its own or find its own pack or whatever. Um, some of these distributors, as they're often referred to, can travel over 800 miles to find a new territory. So they are in, incredibly endurant, I guess, um, and and have great physical stamina and sort of a drive to survive. Now, the wolves who leave their packs, do they leave it alone or is it like a small group that breaks off or um, both? I'm sure that it happens always but what i was reading about with this specifically were these lone ones that, okay. that get sent off sometimes you know if you up, upset the social order they kick you out too so <laughs> that's true there can only be one alpha wolf right yeah or main wolf or chief wolf or boss wolf or whatever well there's the alpha they, male and the female yes and they they rule everything <laughs> yes as as they should as they should they probably have the most kills to their credit or something like that <laughs> Wolves existed everywhere around the world. Europe, Asia, North America, the Northern Hemisphere was suffused with wolves. And we're going to look specifically at the European attitudes toward wolves to start, because if we're looking at wolves and wolf legends in the Great Lakes region in North America, those attitudes are descended in some ways or informed by the attitudes that come from Europe and the context from Europe. So wolves were exterminated in Britain by 1684. By the end of the 18th century, they were gone from Ireland. They were gone from Central Europe by the end of the 19th century. In France, they survived until the 1930s. And in Scandinavia, they lasted until the late 1970s. And they still survive a bit in Finland, as well as in some areas of Eastern Europe. Now, wolves were seen as a menace to livestock and to people. They were dangerous animals, seen as vicious and destructive. But there were also some deeper cultural connotations of wolves as evil or sinister. Christianity, early on, very early on, presents negative images of wolves. If Jesus was the good shepherd and the followers of Jesus were sheep, the natural enemy, the arch enemy, of a shepherd and a sheep would be wolves. So we see metaphors such as needing to be aware of wolves in sheep's clothing and Christians being sent out as sheep amongst wolves and many notes about the ravenous nature of wolves. They're associated with evil. They're associated as an enemy of Christianity. Also fairy tales of rapacious wolves devouring young innocent women as in Little Red Riding Hood. And then, apart from just the dangerous nature of wolves, you've got werewolf lore that's been around in the Western world since ancient times. Greek mythology has the story of Lycaon. Uh, he angered Zeus by feeding him a meal made from the remains of a sacrificed boy. Zeus turned Lycaon and his sons into wolves. The Norse had stories of werewolf-like creatures. Father and son found wolf pelts that, when worn, turned them into wolfmen that then went on a killing rampage. And tales of werewolves continued throughout the centuries and could be found throughout continental Europe. And of course, it's impossible to look at the attitudes of wolves in Europe without exploring the story of the Beast of Gévaudan. So Gévaudan is a region in southern France that was really considered sort of isolated, remote, and perhaps even a bit backwards in the mid-1700s, the 18th century. So this is the time frame that we're looking at for the story. Um, at this time, the Enlightenment was, was going on and spurring rational learning throughout Europe. So we get Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin. They're all thinking about science and this analytical way of looking at things. But in some of these places, like Gévaudan, superstition was still believed to be the guiding force among the peoples. In 1764, we get the first instance of a woman being brutally attacked by a creature. And this went on through 1766. There were nearly 300 victims, 100 of whom died, and they were mostly women and children. And they really were killed in very vicious, gruesome manners. You know, images of heads just being ripped off, bodies mutilated. The worst of when animals attack, right? <laughs> Um, and so for these three years, you know, Jevoudan was terrified and nobody knew what was killing the people in the area. 
So, of course, today historians have examined this instance, and they really believe that the area just had a, a general wolf infestation. Um, if we remember what um, Aaron had mentioned earlier about sort of that line of how wolves were slowly being, you know, killed throughout Europe, of course, they continued on into France until the 1930s, but they were being pushed out of certain larger urban areas. And so, Javoudan being sort of isolated and remote could have been a place where there was just a lot of wolves hanging out for three years because there were hunters who would kill one and they would think, oh boy, we've got it. And then there would be more killings that occurred after that. And historians also believe that the press really trumped up these attacks and all of these efforts to capture the beast. France at the time was coming out of the Seven Years' War or here in the United States what we call the French and Indian War. <laughs> um, but France um, was, was in a sad state and they really needed a cause to rally around. So when these stories and these reports first started coming out, everybody thought, oh boy, you know, we can go out and save the village and um, kill the beast. I am having Beauty and the Beast drama club flashbacks right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I really was in Beauty and the Beast. Did you know that? <laughs> oh, who did, who did you play? I was Cogsworth. <laughs> Co is he the clock? The clock, yes. <laughs> hey, that's that's pretty good for never having seen all of Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's what I was doing. So I was I was actually protecting the beast, but you know. Um, but so the king actually sent hunters out, and there were other hunters, you know, that would come up. Um, perhaps they were hoping to kind of redeem themselves after what had happened during the war. Um, but again, as I mentioned, someone would kill a beast, and then you know, more attacks would occur. And at this point, too, we're leading up to the French Revolution. So there are other reports of sort of the courage of the peasants, you know, and fighting off um, this beast. So all of a sudden, a wolf would be spotted and the local boys who were out looking after the cattle were able to, you know, flush it away or something. It was like, oh boy, look at those brave young boys, you know, <laughs> protecting the herd. And of course, there were reports that the beast could be some kind of chimera, which is a combination of, you know, multiple different animals. And so, you know, it had the a chest as wide as a horse. Um, perhaps its father was a lion and the mother was something they didn't yet know. All of these different kinds of things. Some thought that it had supernatural natural powers, or that maybe it was just an escaped lion or hyena that had been brought from explorations in Africa to kind of be housed in, you know, the wealthiest private collections at the time. So these were all theories that came out, but we can see in this one instance how the fear of the wolf or the wolf-like creature, you know, in 1760s France, you know, really became a national story and dominated the press and and caused a lot of upset. And it's something that, you know, today we are still talking about um, this instance whenever, you know, discussions about werewolves and dogmen and that kind of thing comes up. So now we're going to jump back in time just a smidge and look at the European colonists who came to North America, because of course, they're bringing all of this Christianity folklore kind of culture, baggage, ideas about wolves, whatever it might be, with them to this new world. And so while doing this research, I relied um, heavily on the book Vicious, Wolves and Men in America by John Coleman. It was a book I actually had read in grad school, and I'm glad I never sold that one back because who knew it would <laughs> become handy um, when I decided to make a podcast one day. Um, but he, uh, Coleman really goes into the, the views that the colonists had of themselves being these threatened ones in this new land. You know, they're just these innocent Europeans who are, you know, running away from Europe and trying to start, you know, new colonies, new life out here. And they are faced with all of these terrible obstacles. There are Native American threats. The climate is something they're unfamiliar with. The terrain is something they're unfamiliar with. And then there are predators such as wolves that lurked in the dark environment all around them. They would hear them howling and, you know, it was something that they hadn't heard um, because wolves had probably been out of the urban areas and things that they had moved from for, for quite some time. So hearing the wolf howling in the night was something very new and very scary to them. And the wolves were also a very serious threat to their livestock. So without livestock, without cows and pigs and all of those things, the colonists wouldn't be able to survive. They were really dependent upon 
these herds that they, these starter herds that they brought with them, continuing to grow and multiply. And wolves were a serious threat to that. And so, without without the, that livestock, they would not be able to live the kind of settlement life that they had been used to already. And so, then the religion tie-in is very interesting. If we think back to what Aaron had said about these ideas of wolves being, you know, these sinister creatures, these obstacles to Christianity. A lot of these colonists who moved to um, North America really saw them as, saw themselves as, you know, ordained by God. They were completing this mission to create this new city on a hill. And so the things that threatened this mission, you know, to them were, were satanic or demonic or something, the things that were getting in their way. And um, so we see, you know, writings from folks like, you know, the very famous minister Cotton Mather, who wrote about just about everything in colonial Massachusetts, including the Salem witch trials, you know, also speaking out against wolves. So these creatures, you know, they thought posed a very serious physical threat to their livestock and to their own person. But also there was this larger religious metaphor that they were connecting to. And so this was one reason why the wolves needed they, they needed to be gone. They needed to be exterminated. They needed to, to be out of the areas that the colonists wanted, wanted to claim for themselves. There's some differences here, and we're, we're going to see this more. We're going to return in a bit to the, uh, the, the colonists' actions toward wolves. We've got their attitude towards wolves and, and sort of their, their actions. And their actions were largely based on the way they saw the land and their role on the land. And this was a, a deep contrast with Native American views, not just of land, but of wolves. And Barry Lopez argued in his 1978 book of Wolves and Men that among Native Americans, particularly tribes in the Great Plains, but not exclusively, there's a lot of, he says there's limits to the generalizations you can draw, but there's a lot of similarities throughout North America. But broadly, Identification with the wolf was a mystical experience based on a, a perception of the wolf's way of life, its overall environment. Lopez observed that on occasion, this could become conscious imitation. The wolf was revered by many tribes and uh, in some ways, in some ways emulated. The perception of wolves varied. Where tribes were agricultural, there was much less emphasis on the wolf as part of their sort of spiritual life and much less importance sort of based on it. But hunting-oriented tribes, there's a much greater mythical religious role for wolves in hunting-related tribes, which kind of makes sense um, because wolves are hunters in a way. Well, not in a way. Wolves are hunters. <laughs> so Native American cosmology in general, and there are limits to what we can generalize, focused on six important directions above and below and then the compass directions of north south east and west and the wolf is frequently represented or, or is frequently the animal or spirit representing the east it's a creature with great power and influence in the spiritual realm every creature including the wolf had specific qualities and importance and there was there's variations among the tribes uh, the pawnee tribe for example uh, for them the wolf was assigned to the southeast and was also in the sky so the wolf is is, is part of the southeast quadrant of the cosmos but also in the sky and the reason the wolf was in the sky as a star was to guard the evening star so the wolf had a protective role in the heavens as a star. And they're also held in high regard for their hunting skill, which makes sense again among hunting tribes, but not just for hunting skill, but also for their role in providing for the larger community, not just the wolves who are leaders of this wolf hierarchy in these packs, providing for other members of the packs, but providing for the whole ecology of the region. For example, Wolves kill, wolves eat, wolves don't eat every square inch of everything they kill. They leave things there. That provides a source of food for carrion feeders, for example, like vultures that, you know, eat dead animals. So there's this, this sense in the many of the native stories that the wolf is in its way of life provides for more than just the immediate group. And there's an emphasis on the communal nature of wolves that parallels the communal nature of Native American tribes. 
And Lopez sort of describes this in a, a really sort of evocative passage. He says, quote, with such a strong sense of the interdependence among all creatures and an acute awareness of the ways in which his own life resembled the wolves, hunting for himself, hunting for his family, defending his tribe against enemy attack as the wolf protected the, his own den against the grizzly, the Indian naturally turned to the wolf as a paradigm, a mere reflection. He wished directly for that power, and he imitated him homeopathically by wearing his skin. He wished always to be as well integrated in his environment as he could see the wolf was in the universe, end quote. So there, imitating the wolf by wearing his skin, sort of hearkening back to that earlier sort of Scandinavian story about the, the sort of werewolf creatures becoming wolves by wearing the skin. I just thought that was an interesting parallel. And did you know, too, I didn't include it in here, but the same way that we have, or not that we have, but that North mythology has berserkers, which are, of course, like the bear warriors. I forget the name, but there is also a wolf warrior as well. This like select group of warriors who, you know, had the traits of the wolf. <laughs> that's in, I wonder, I wonder sort of if that's just less like full on berserker mode and more stealthy i don't know how um how that would work i i came across it while researching a different project i was working on a while ago there's also a boar warrior as well so please tell me they've got giant sort of wooden tusks that they just bore people so. with they've got to I mean, otherwise what's the point something coming off their helmet like down along their jawline right yeah <laughs> i think i think it makes sense yes so this, this parallel is, is significant because, according to Lopez, the wolf was the one animal that did two things at once, year after year. The wolf remained, quote, distinct and exemplary as an individual, end quote, but also had a role to play serving the tribe. And according to Lopez, there are no stories among Indian tribes of lone wolves. There's no myths of lone wolves. The wolf is a pack animal serving the community, just as for the native, they had this dual role as an individual, but also serving the wider community. Um, it's interesting that they pull that out as something very specific to the the native cultures and to um, wolves. But I mean, really, when you look at ideas in some of these early communities in New England, it was the same thing. Like you're working for the whole, you're working for the common good. Like that was the foundation. But th the European mindset didn't allow them to kind of see that reflected in, in other things in nature the same way that the, the native peoples who, you know, had always lived there, <laughs> um, were able to. So what I like about what you said is that, yes, there is this sort of parallel within colonial society, particularly New England, where you've got these small communities, especially at first, struggling to survive and all needing each other. Every member of the community is significant, not too different from what uh, Lopez describes the tribes as, as needing to live by. But where there's a distinction, I think, and what, what the difference is, is whereas the natives see nature as something to live amongst, to be a part of the same sort of sphere as, mm -hmm. the Europeans see nature as something to be subjugated and conquered, something to yeah. be controlled or, or conquered. So whether it's the land or the animals or, mm -hmm. or whatever, nature is there to to serve man. Creation is there to serve man. So going back again to, to some aspects of, of Christian thought about this, it's a different mm -hmm. sort of perspective on nature. So more specifically to the Great Lakes region among the Ojibwe, the wolf was considered a valued guide and companion sent by the creator to be a partner for men. And the same parallels between the life way of the wolf and of the people of the region exist here as Lopez described among the Plains tribes. Uh, there's a 2017 article in Northern Wilds magazine that explained the Ojibwe saw wolves to be wise mentors from a time when humans and animals openly communicated with each other. Quote, wolves instructed indigenous peoples how to conduct themselves both in social groups and hunting a field. Like wolf packs, native families organized themselves into clans, taking on responsibilities in service of the greater community, working for the benefit of everyone. So there are contrasts 
between the way European colonists saw wolves and the way that natives saw wolves. So this is going to, to, to play out in the future as fundamental differences in the ways that European settlers and conquerors saw everything compared to how the natives did. And that this clash of cultures would have disastrous effects. And we can sort of see the idea of the wolf as, as maybe, I don't know, Sam, being kind of a microcosm of the larger cultural differences that exist in some ways. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, we'll look at some more aspects of wolves from pop culture and the vernacular. And we'll look at how we can use sources as historians to understand how people perceived wolves in the past. How do we learn about these things? And what do we know about what wolves are doing now? How are present day attitudes toward wolves the same or different than what we've seen in the past. Next time on Great Lakes Lore, we have Dogman Part 2, yet to be subtitled. (laughs) (laughs) I was wondering if we had a subtitle for that yet. You can subscribe to Great Lakes Lore at greatlakeslore.com or wherever you find podcasts. And be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook, YouTube. Links are in the show notes. Great Lakes Lore relies on listener donations rather than advertising. If you like what you hear and want to hear more, there are links in the show notes and at greatlakeslore.com to contribute. And be sure to reach out with your questions and comments on this episode for the next installment of Monday Mail Call. And now it's time for Legend or Lie. So if we remember, I got the first point last time. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So now it is your turn to try and win a point as I try to stump you with a story that is either an actual legend, though not necessarily factual, um, because it is a legend and that's the nature of legends, or if it's something I've completely (laughs) made up. So, I'm I'm excited and terrified. (laughs) All right. Are you ready? I, I am as ready as I'll ever be. All right. So there is this creature, this sort of cryptid, um, that, sort of interdimensional being uh, called the Wahila. And it roams an area that spans from Alaska to Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Um, So it traverses great lengths, right? And it said that it can pop up in one spot and then the next day pop up in another. And it is described as a bear dog-like creature and um, can rip a person's head clean off. Okay, so just to make sure I understand what you're saying here. Mm-hmm. It's an interdimensional creature that roams from Alaska to the UP. It's a bear dog thing. Mm-hmm. And it rips people's heads off. Mm-hmm. And what's the name of it again? The Wahila. The Wahila. That's what I thought you said. <laughs> the Wahila. Okay, this is this is tough because there there's some things jumping out at me as as oh come on uh, the the Alaska <laughs> to the UP is is one of those things that that's sort of like oh that seems a little a, a little sort of specific. Um, mm-hmm. Wahila is just enough of a is a is just a, a, a silly enough sounding name that I want to think it's real, but it also sounds like a Star Wars alien. Uh, it kind of like does. A, sounds like a George Lucas <laughs> alien. Yes. Name. Um, I think you're making this up. No, it's real. Are you Are you serious? Yes. <laughs> we 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 are going to do a Wahila episode, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, I, I think we okay, have okay. to. We have to do a Wahila. Ep- That's real. Mhm. That Okay, it's still it's still one nothing. Um you're well, still I sh- I'll say it is real as in found an article about it on the internet. So Okay, so you know. that, I mean that, this is not that, something I've just counts. made up in that, my mind, that, no, which that, I that, feel like that's right. the criteria here. Yes, so. yes it is. Yes it is. Um it, to to for for it to be a lie, it has to be something that that 
is is holy from your head. It can be inspired by other things, uh, <laughs> like my tuna can flying saucer last time. Yes. But um, <laughs> wow, real okay. Mm-hmm. Wahila episode has to be on the list for <laughs> um for for twenty twenty two at at some point. Yeah. Well, I, that was um. I was gonna say I had a good run, but I haven't. Um, I <laughs> no. haven't gotten one right yet. Oh. Boy, and, and this wasn't me second guessing. This was wasn't me using any sort of logic or like, well, last time it was fake, so this time <laughs> it's probably she's gonna make it real, and so I'm gonna fake her out by saying it's fake. no. I was just wrong. <laughs> Wahila, mm-hmm. Wahila. The wolf is the archetype of Raven, the beast of waste and desolation. Theodore Roosevelt. All right, now that we're back, we're going to start off by looking at wolves in pop culture and the vernacular, because we thought that would be also an important place to look um, for these ideas and things that people today encounter that sort of inform their ideas about wolves. I think I'll kick this off, right? According to the list here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're going to divvy these up and go back and forth here. Um, So the first one that I thought of were stories like The Jungle Book. Um, Of course, we can all think about Mowgli, you know, being raised by a pack of wolves. And so it's not... They're not the terrifying type of wolves, but the type of wolves who took in and raised something as their own. And, you know, they have this sort of dramatic, um, you know, social hierarchy and things like that. Um, But another book that I read as a child, so this is sort of going to probably hit only people in my age demographic, but it was um, Julie of the Wolves. And I read this in fifth grade. And it is another story of a child being taken in by a pack of wolves. Um, She is an Inuit child um, in northern Alaska. And um, the book really went goes into a lot of detail about, you know, the behaviors and the hierarchies and all these kinds of things involved in the wolf pack. And this is totally what kicked off my wolf obsession (laughs) Um, (laughs) as, as an early middle schooler. Um, because I was just fascinated by all of it. So I listed these two examples um, that first came to mind and took a second and thought about it. And neither of these are European children who were taken in by these wolf packs. Um, Of course, The Jungle Book takes place in India, and Julie of the Wolves is taking place in Alaska among native cultures. So I thought that was, granted, it's something that that children, you know, have watched for for decades or read, but um, interesting, the subject there, I thought. We mentioned pop culture, but I want to talk about vernacular, how the the term wolf or the, the concept of the wolf sort of comes out in different ways. It just comes out in phrases, wolf whistle. Um, a wolfish expression. You're wolfing down food. There's connotations of, of rapaciousness. There's sensuality there. There's animalistic hunger. And a lot of animals eat things very fast. Dogs, I mean, yes, related to wolves, but dogs gobble things up right away. I've seen cats tear into food in a way that's absolutely terrifying. Nobody says, oh, cats are terrifying. <laughs> they are. And and so if we if we say you know dogs are to wolves as let's say house cats are to lions we don't say wow they really lioned down that pie we say wolf they wolfed it down so the wolf has this position of of having this sort of almost unfulfillable hunger and um and lust and lack of lack of inhibition and. I'm not entirely sure why that is, apart from some of the things we've been talking about from European culture and history of, of wolves as being sort of, you know, sinful and, and sort of on the the bad negative end of the spectrum of behavior. And I just I just always find it fascinating the way that, you know, the wolf has been incorporated into all of these different uh, different expressions and things like that. And I always feel bad about it. So You do? <laughs> yes. Poor wolves have been getting a bad rap for centuries, man. Well, they're <laughs> to, to to take the anti-wolf position, 
They run around eating people's faces if you're not nice to them. I, I would rather meet a wolf in the forest than a cougar. That cougar is going to rip your face off and eat every bit of you. <laughs> And you'll never even know it was there. <laughs> that's that's true. And well, well uh, crocodiles and alligators too. I, I think are are much more frightening than than wolves. Now, 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 wolves are terrifying, but but I I understand your your sympathy towards this because they have sort of been been painted with this broad brush of being almost the the thrill killers of the animal kingdom, and they're not at all. <laughs> So another um, interesting literary example that we have of the wolf is in Dracula. And so Bram Stoker, of course, wrote Dracula at the end of the 19th century. And um, Dracula has control over the wolves. And the wolves are closely associated with them. Of course, we always think of vampires and bats and Dracula turning into a bat or whatever. But there are strong connections throughout the book with wolves as well. And so I think, you know, I could be that they're seen as a creature of the night. Um, you know, they're, they're out howling at the moon and therefore they, they must be up to mm-hmm. nefarious things and a great companion for the undead. <laughs> Makes sense. And also in pop culture, we've got music. We've got Duran Duran's hungry, like the wolf. Probably when I think of songs that mention wolves, uh, hungry, like the wolf is the one that, pops into my head uh most uh most often and i'm not quite old enough for it to have been to have been aware of it on the radio i think i was alive but i wasn't really aware of it but it's just been sort of this classic 80s song and another classic 80s thing that always i always remember when i I think about wolves is when the the gi joe cartoon uh, the gi joe cartoon um snake eyes who's sort of the ninja character for the good guys, G.I. Joe, he has a wolf named Timber. And he meets the wolf because he's injured from radiation from a nefarious cobra plot. And the wolf rescues him and takes him to an old guy who lives on a mountain who helps him. And the old guy says that that the wolf recognized Snake Eyes' warrior spirit or his in- inherent nobility or something. So it raises the wolf to a, a standard where he's not a pet. He's still sort of a vicious thing um and the action figure came with a little wolf i never had it but um it came with a little wolf and i just got a note here in the studio that we would be remiss not to mention werewolves of london as a a, another pop culture um another pop culture um sort of reference to wolves or werewolves uh by the uh the late great incomparable warren zevon uh so i i of course felt the need to include um, a, a brief mention of the reintroduction of wolves. I don't want to end this on a sad note um, because, you know, great, great things have happened. Um, in 1973, wolves were placed under the protection of the Endangered Species Act in the United States, and they have been able to make a steady comeback in the Rocky Mountain region, as well as the northern reaches of Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Although being from West, the middle of the mitten, West Michigan. I will say that occasionally there are rumors of like, ah, we found wolf tracks out in the Manistee National Forest. So you never know what's out in the Manistee National Forest. Um, (laughs) They they still raise controversy though, and especially in regards to livestock protection. So this is the same story from from centuries ago. Ranchers out west don't want the wolves of Yellowstone leaving the park and, of course, decimating their flocks of wildlife. Uh, In the UP here in Michigan, that's the Upper Peninsula, um, I know that there are always stories about, you know, people losing animals, um, hunting dogs, things like that to wolves. And so not everybody in these regions has, you know, a, a great outlook on them or or thinks there should be perhaps some stronger um, management of the populations. And I know in some areas there are very limited wolf hunts allowed as well as sort of you can protect your property in extreme cases type, type situations. And of course, I think people still fear a wise, strong predator that can work in a team, right? So you have a pack of them. It's not one. They're like furry velociraptors. <laughs> Right, they're communicating with one another to team up on, on their prey. 
Um, uh, I will say here in Michigan, we have Isle Royal National Park, which is an island in Lake Superior. So there they have the longest continual wolf study, and it's being conducted by Michigan Technological University or Michigan Tech. And there they are monitoring the packs on the island, their learning behaviors, how they balance their territories, how they affect the moose population on the island. Since it's a very controlled environment, they can get a lot of great data about that. And then if we look over to Europe, in 1980, wolves are protected in most countries of the EU, and they are making a slow comeback. So today, Europe's wolf population is near 17,000, and they exist in 28 countries. So the work of all of the hunters um, throughout the centuries is, is you know, slowly being un- undone, and, and wolves are coming back. Which is, again, mm-hmm. controversial in some areas. There, there's... There's still, I think it was last year, Wisconsin had a big sort of brouhaha mm-hmm. between wolf advocates and wolf hunting advocates about changes to the regulations mm-hmm. about hunting wolves. And it is uh, it is sort of a very sort of fraught situation that I feel often those of us in an area where, where we don't really aren't we don't really have any danger of coming across a wolf in our daily life, have opinions that might be different if we lived in an area where, oh, my dog just got mauled by a wolf. See, I'm always like, these humans, they be moving places and they be taking spaces (laughs) and things are going to (laughs) happen. I side with the animals always. That's just something everybody's going to have to understand. The the, the next time some sort of wild animal (laughs) decides to <laughs> rampage through your garden and you're upset yes. about it, I will remind you of that. Yeah, I haven't killed anything. <laughs> Turning to this idea of of sources, how do we as historians sort of evaluate how historians who've written about these things have found information? How do we say, oh, that's a good source for this kind of information? This isn't a good source. How do we deal with the concept of folklore as as Sam's going to talk about in a little bit with regard to some of these stories. So if we look at New England where we mentioned earlier you've got this this new European population coming in they're dealing with the wolf population they're scared about it they impart maybe a spiritual dimension to it and they deal with it Harshly. So the the colonists come in, and one of the things about this that again differentiates them from the natives that lived here before is they put boundaries on the land, they put fences, they divide things up. There's laws saying you cannot have flocks of sheep that aren't enclosed within fenced areas because the sheep will get mixed up and we won't know whose property is whom. There's new kinds of settlement, new kinds of agriculture. And and literally, it's it's like you said, Sam, the humans are on the animal land. You know, colonists are infringing on the wolf's land and the wolves see sheep and cows. I was going to say no different from the deer that they hunt generally, but easier target. (laughs) They're slower and yeah, they're slower and dumber than the deer they hunt. So the wolves are wolves are going to wolf, right? They're they're, they're going to, to do their thing. And, you know, the settlers say things like they're ravenous, cruel creatures, and they're costing the colonists a lot of money. So town governments begin offering bounties for wolf heads, and people take advantage of it, including Native Americans. Native Americans you know, say, oh, that money would be nice. I would like that. And so there's a sort of run on killing wolves, and there's practical issues with this. There's dumbness. I read one great story about Uh, some injuries to humans happening because the way they were killing the wolves was they were setting up muskets to be fired by wolves running Mm -hmm. over tripwires that pulled the triggers, which sounds like a phenomenally bad idea. There's also ways to incentivize the destruction of wolves or to, to destroy wolves that have much broader ecological implications, such as draining swamps where wolves were thought to live. So if you have property with a swamp, you get money for draining that swamp or you're required by law to drain the swamp in colonial New England to give the wolves nowhere to live and give yourself some more farmland to boot. So by the end of the colonial period, wolves are mostly gone from southern New England. And as settlers move westward throughout the 1700s and and the 1800s, 
these means of eliminating wolves, draining swamps, offering bounties for wolf heads, those ideas come with them. And wolf populations east of the Mississippi were decimated. And we've got firsthand accounts of how this happens, don't we, Sam? Yes. Yeah, so um, in my day job, <laughs> um, I manage an archive. And in that archive, we actually have a colonial diary um, from, from an ancestor of the family whose house and archive I manage. And um, this, this gentleman served many different official positions in the town of Hampton, New Hampshire, uh, where he was from. He was born in England as a small child, and the family moved um, to um, the, the New England area, and then they settled in New Hampshire. And um, so in, in his roles, he actually must have at some point been monitoring these wolf head bounties because there's one page, and I won't I could talk for an hour about this diary and what it what it means to colonial history, um, but I won't. And I'll just say that there's a page in this diary that um, he lists, you know, a few people's names and um, you know a number and and or a monetary amount, I guess, and then wolf head. And so, um, you know, through through what I knew um, from the wonderful book I read in grad school, um, you know, I was able to deduce that that these you know, he was tracking these wolf head bounties um, that were being brought in by people to protect them. He was also in charge of monitoring the cow commons. Um, so maybe that's why he was also monitoring the wolf bounties, too, because he I mean, he served many different official capacities. Um, so, you know, in, in one of his roles, it could have just been the job to, to do the wolf bounties. Um, but, yeah, he was in charge of monitoring the cow commons, too. So if your cow on the cow commons went dry, you, your cow got kicked off because you can't have a cow that's not producing milk taking up grazing space. So, <laughs> Well, that's, that's completely understandable. Yeah. Now, in this diary, um, I read some things about some of the issues that towns had in administering these, uh, th- these bounty schemes. And I, I just wondered if, if there was any hint in there of disputes over the town not wanting to pay a bounty because they're pretty sure somebody brought a wolf head from another town and was trying to get a bigger bounty in one town or another or anything no it's just one page that just has this list there's no um, other information about it or anything well i shouldn't say no because some of the pages are written in a bizarre shorthand that we have yet to crack so maybe there is a bunch of cool information about that um i'm not really sure but on the pages that are not written in weird crazy colonial shorthand um there is not any information about disputes between these bounties because it's it's interesting because because sort of a, a a constant in human nature is this idea that that I'm going to try to rip somebody off <laughs> if they're going to give me money for something. So you had to turn in the wolf's head to get the yeah. bounty. And what people were doing was saying, you know, here's a wolf head. Okay, here's I don't know twenty bucks. I know that's not what it was, but here's twenty bucks for your wolf head. And of course, you know, the clerk doesn't want the wolf head. Because what are you going to do with it? So you had people taking the same wolf head to two or three different towns mm. and collecting the bounty. So they had institute a system where, okay, once we pay you the bounty, we chop off the ears of the mm. wolf. So the other towns know that the bounty's already been paid. So I just, I'm a nerd and I find this very interesting, the ways that bureaucratic processes had to adapt to people trying to rip off the wolf head bounty system. So Coleman mentions in his book that um, sometimes they would actually mount the heads like, you know, on the outside of the meeting house or something like that. So in that case, they would have been truly taking the head and and doing a thing with it. So in part, a scare tactic, right? Intimidation, not necessarily just to the wolves, but also to to the native populations as well. Like, look, we're we killed all these wolves. <laughs> um, so the other thing that we wanted to mention, and this is going to lead into our wrap up, is sort of the nature of a lot of this folklore that that we've talked about. Um, and, you know, when we think about folklore, these are stories that are passed down and passed down and passed down, you know, similar to, you know, when we think of urban legends even today. Um, and so a lot of times especially when we're looking back um, to 15, 1600, some of these really, really early ideas, they're oral traditions. And so if you've ever played telephone as a child, you know that the story as it starts is not the story as it ends. And so it's hard to 
track all of the time how these stories change and morph over time. And it's also really difficult to know just because, you know, somebody might have encountered you know, ideas about wolves and Christianity. Is that what was informing their actions, you know, when they first encountered a wolf, you know, in in the woods of New England or something like that? There's no way for us as a historian to know, oh, this person did this because he thought about that Bible verse or he thought about the grim fairy tale of Little Red Riding Hood or there's no way to track these kinds of things. And um, I think that this idea the fact that there there aren't reliable sources and that they are oral traditions leads us into you know the lead up into part two of our our dogman series. Yes, because when we look at modern dogman stories, when we look at many paranormal stories, what are they except mm-hmm. modern day folklore, oral retellings told by people who witness something? to people who are investigating these things. And those investigators become, in a way, modern-day, dare I say, bards of the strange, retelling these stories in books and on websites and on forums and at paranormal conventions and on documentaries. The mediums or media, I guess is the plural, are different, but it's the same sort of thing. And even physical evidence, if we can put that in sort of sarcasm, suspicious quotes, physical evidence of these <laughs> encounters, skeptical, st- skeptical quotes, skeptical quotes, skeptical quotes. We'll call them skeptical quotes. So putting these things in skeptical quotes, we, we can even argue that although a video clip or a cast of a footprint might not be folklore in a general sense, the story of what this physical item represents is a kind of, you know, retold folklore, our interpretation of these things. The interpretation becomes the story and the story becomes part of the myth. And, you know, there was that one dog, man, the person saw and there's a clip of it out there if you can find it. And these things all become part of a story. Yes. So thank you for listening to this first part of our Dogman series. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you can see the connection that we saw in sort of mining this rich history of human interactions with wolves and and how these ideas um, about this creature can perhaps inform those individuals who see something they can't recognize on a dark road in the middle of the woods. And as they're thinking about what it could be, you know, this, this sort of idea of this dog man, um, or wolf man, you know, whatever it is, um, is, is what comes to mind. Um, we really thought it was important to set that stage for, for all of you. And we hope you agree. (laughs) Yes. And be back next time for dog man part two. Subtitle to be announced. (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening. Wolves of Legend was written by Samantha Engel with Aaron Gullius and produced by Aaron Gullius and Samantha Engel. Our music is by Raphael Crux. Great Lakes Lore is a Chizo Media production. Chizo Media, our heart is with the people. Until next time, don't get lost in the lore.